Remember that the subject of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus is the kingdom of God. Jesus knows what is in man. We read at the end of John chapter 2. And he knew what was in this man. This man of the Pharisees. As John chapter 3 and verse 1 calls him. Because Jesus knew what was in this man, what he wanted to talk about, what he was really after, Jesus cut straight to the chase with him. Nicodemus comes saying, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. It's a little bit of a probing, initiatory statement. It's warming up. It's preliminaries. It's... It's expressing some level of interest in Jesus, some level even of confidence in Jesus. He's, he's granting that Jesus was a man sent, or a teacher sent from God, come from God. But what Nicodemus really wants to know is the kingdom of God at hand, as the other gospel writers put it. Jesus knows this. Cuts straight to the chase and says to him, Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We talked last week about how verse 2 and verse 3 seem not to have much of a connection at all. Jesus' response doesn't seem to have much of a connection at all to Nicodemus' first statement. But the connection is this. Jesus is bypassing the opening preliminaries. He's bypassing the pleasantries and he's cutting straight to the chase. He knows that Nicodemus is here to talk to him about the kingdom of God, to inquire about the coming of the kingdom of God. And Jesus gets straight to that, straight to the point and says, the first thing we need to talk about is that you need to be born again. If you want to talk about the kingdom of God, the first thing you need to understand, Nicodemus, is that you need to be born again if you are ever to see it. We dealt with that at length last week. I mention it to refresh our memories as obviously what we're dealing with today from verses 14 through 21 are very much connected to the teaching in the first several verses of the chapter. It's all one encounter, all one conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. In John 3, 9 to 13, Jesus makes a brief digression from the subject matter at hand to chide Nicodemus for not knowing these things in spite of being a teacher of Israel. So in verses 1 to 8, he's really driving home. You need to be born again. You need to be born again. Nicodemus says, how can this be? And Jesus chides him. Are you a teacher of Israel? And you don't know these things? Against the backdrop of Nicodemus' inadequate knowledge, Jesus asserts in John chapter 3 and verse 13, that he, as the one who has ascended and descended from heaven, has the knowledge Nicodemus needs. So 9 to 13 is something of a digression from the main subject matter, which is Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. He said in verses 1 to 8 that Nicodemus needs to be born again. 
And then in John chapter 3 and verse 14, Jesus resumes his teaching on the kingdom of God. The first thing that he had told Nicodemus was that Nicodemus had to be born again to see and enter the kingdom of God. And now he's going on from there, but within this broader conversation of the kingdom of God. And again, he's going to challenge Nicodemus's thinking. What will the kingdom of God look like in its coming? What kind of people become its citizens? First, Jesus teaches that the coming kingdom of God doesn't look or won't look at first like what Nicodemus might have expected it to. The kingdom of God is not going to be like an anti-Roman SWAT team. Knocking down the door and coming in with assault rifles to rescue the Jews from a hostage situation to the Romans. That would have been a typical understanding or expectation of many Jews in Jesus' day. Extra-biblical sources tell us of many messiahs in the intertestamental period, which is just a fancy way of saying between Malachi and Matthew. Many messiahs. And you know what they did? They gathered people around them and took up arms to overthrow the Romans. That was the expectation of what the messiah was going to do. And time after time, the Romans put them down and proved them to be false messiahs. But just because they were false messiahs, people didn't necessarily give up the paradigm within which those false messiahs operated. They didn't think, well, maybe we should look for a different kind of messiah. They just thought, well, when the real one comes, he'll succeed. And he will actually be able to overthrow the Romans. Look at what Peter does when they come to arrest Jesus in the garden. He draws a sword and he cuts off the ear of one of the men who had come to arrest Jesus. In spite of Jesus' very clear teaching throughout his earthly ministry, the disciples had a profound Ignorance, a, 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 a deep-seated blindness to the nature of the kingdom of God, to the nature of the Messiah's work until the resurrection, at least, but moreover until Pentecost. The kingdom of God... Jesus teaches here in this passage or John teaches here in this passage commenting and narrating theologians are not sure exactly where to end the quotation of Jesus it doesn't really matter because of our doctrine of inspiration it's still the Holy Spirit talking after verse 15 right but some people think that the quotation mark should end after 15 and that it's John's word from 16 onward. 
some people think that Jesus' discourse goes further. I'm not going to try to resolve that today. The Holy Spirit teaches us in verse 17 that God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. You know who the world was? Those damned Romans. Do you understand that? The Jews thought that the Messiah would come to condemn the world. The Jews thought that the Messiah would come like a SWAT team to rescue the Jews from the world. That the Messiah and His followers would bear arms. That the kingdom of God would look like a military procession. To overthrow, to condemn the Romans, the world, and anyone else who might try to oppress the Jewish people. But Jesus says... God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. You see, the Messiah came to save Romans. The Messiah came to save Romans. To us, we're like, so? To us, we're like, so he came to save Bajans. Okay, that's great. That's good. As Gentiles, of course, we would be happy to hear that. We wouldn't be surprised to hear that. Or scandalized to hear that. We're glad that the kingdom of God is of this nature. But consider that Jesus is talking to a Jew who had a very different set of expectations. The Son of God didn't come into the world to condemn the Romans, but to save the Romans. Those looking for a military overthrow of the Romans, those looking for a SWAT team will be disappointed with the descriptions given here, given here of what this kingdom looks like. A kingdom that prioritizes compassion for rather than conquest of the Romans, the nations surrounding the Jews. For God so loved the Romans, that He gave His only Son. That whoever, yea, even among the Romans, believes in Him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. God wasn't coming in wrath upon the Romans, but God was coming in love to the Romans in the person of His Son. 
those who are looking for one kind of kingdom would be disappointed to find out that it is quite another kind. The kingdom of God looks like a king who dies rather than a king who kills. We know, obviously, from reading the rest of John's Gospel, the rest of the New Testament, that when it speaks of the Son of Man being lifted up, and that God, when we read of God giving His only Son, we know that we're talking about the cross. Behold your King. The King who dies, rather than the King who kills. The king who brings light. This is the judgment. Verse 19. The light has come into the world. This is reminiscent of chapter 1. The light. A king who shows up with a flashlight, as it were. As opposed to a sword. A king who says, let me, let me show you who you are and who God is let me shine some light into the darkness instead of me killing you let me die for you and not just you the Jew but you the Roman you the Bajan you the American you the Canadian you the Malaysian This is the kind of, this is the way that the way the kingdom looks in its coming. Not a SWAT team, not a king who kills, but a king who dies. Not a king who bears a sword, but a king who bears a flashlight. Those looking for one kind of kingdom will be quite disappointed to find out it's actually something else altogether. The simile given to us here is a bronze serpent on a pole rescuing the world from poison. Back in Numbers 21, we read of God's judgment sending poisonous snakes into the camp of the Israelites. And as people were bitten and infected with the venom, they were dying. God instructed Moses to make a bronze serpent and raise it up on a pole. Whoever looked upon the serpent would find that the venom no longer was an instrument of death to him. He was treated against the poison in his veins. <clears throat> As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The kingdom of God looks like 
foreign diplomacy mission where one king sends an ambassador to the citizens of another kingdom with an antidote for the poison that infects them. That's what it looks like. Even to the Romans, the antidote comes. To those from every tribe and language and people and nation, the antidote comes. This is what the kingdom of God looks like in its coming. One lifted up that all who look to him might find that the poison has no ill effect upon them any longer. One of the commentators I read this week noted that the thing that the Old Testament Israelites looked at resembled that which caused their suffering and caused their death. So it was at the cross where Jesus became sin for us. We looked upon a man on the cross who looked like one of us, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted in the place of sinners, where sinners belonged. And it was in looking to Him who was made in the likeness of a sinner that the healing of God, the antidote of God, the remedy of God was applied to us and the poison running through our veins. This is what the kingdom of God looks like in its coming. And it's not what Nicodemus expected it to look like. It would have confronted Nicodemus with the reality that the problem... The real problem was not out there, but in here. The real problem that had to be addressed was not some Roman outpost stationed there or stationed over there. The real problem was that Nicodemus had poison running through his veins. And needed someone to be lifted up. Upon whom he might look. To find an antidote for that poison. Jesus taught Nicodemus. A little something of the kingdom of God. In verses 14 and following. What it looks like in its coming. What kind of people become its citizens? Not those whom Nicodemus would have expected. The kingdom didn't look like what he thought it would. And his citizens didn't look like what he thought they would. Not only would it be citizens drawn from around the world 
Not Jews only, but Gentiles. Not Jews only, but Romans. Ibajans, Canadians, and so forth. But it would be... It would receive into its citizenship those who are poisoned, perishing, condemned. Look at this passage in John chapter 3. Obviously the poison is implied in verses 14 and 15. That as the serpent was lifted up, so the Son of Man would be lifted up. That indicates to us that those who enter His kingdom are those who were poisoned. Poisoned. Verse 16, that familiar text. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What if you don't believe in Him? You're going to perish. That means until you believe in Him, you're perishing. So you're poisoned. You're perishing. Verse 18, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. What about the innocent native? Somewhere out there in the far reaches of the world. Whoever does not believe is condemned already. He's poisoned. He's perishing. You understand there's no such thing. Romans 1 talks about how the things that may be known about God are evident to us in the things that have been made and yet we do not honor God or give thanks to Him but we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We're all poisoned, perishing, condemned apart from Christ Jesus. Outside of Christ Jesus, until we come into His kingdom, we are outside it. Everyone outside it is poisoned. Everyone outside it is perishing. Everyone outside it is condemned. We are guilty for rejecting what God has revealed to us in general revelation, that is, through the things that have been made. And we are further guilty for rejecting the preaching of the gospel, not believing in the name of the only Son of God, as verse 18 tells us. The Pharisees had a mindset. And it's exemplified in the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. 
I give tithes of all that I get. This isn't a prayer, thank you God for saving me. This isn't a prayer, thank you God for the transformation that you have wrought in me. For I used to be like that. But by your grace alone, I'm not like that anymore. That's not the prayer here. The prayer here is, I thank you that I am intrinsically different than everybody else. I thank you that you made me of a superior nature to everyone else. And that I am a better man than everyone else, including this tax collector here. Look at that guy. That's what's going on in Luke 18. That's the way the Pharisees thought of themselves. Poisoned? No. Perishing? No. Condemned? No. I'm not like other men. We are not like other men. Jesus tells Nicodemus here, those who live are those who were first poisoned. Those who receive eternal life are those who were first perishing. Those who are not condemned are those who were once condemned. The very nature of the citizens of the kingdom of God at the time of their reception is that they were poisoned, perishing, and condemned. Coming into Jesus' kingdom is not like applying to immigrate to another country. Where you need to make your case, first of all, upon which grounds are you applying. I became a citizen of Barbados by marriage. According to the laws of Barbados, that's actually my right upon those grounds, because I married a Bajan, to become a Bajan. And so I make my case, what do I bring to the table? My wife. I make my case. You can apply other ways. So it is with other countries. You can apply as a skilled worker. You can apply for refugee status. You can apply on a, But the point is, you make your case. What do you bring to the table? In order that you might become a citizen of this nation, of this country, of this kingdom. What can you write down on your CV that we might review and make a judgment in your favor or against you? Make your best case and then be interviewed to see whether it is that you actually meet the qualifications that you have claimed. This is the way the process works. Many countries, most countries, if not all countries. To come into the kingdom of God, you simply look at the Son of Man lifted up as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness. You simply believe 
in God's Son who was given. That's it. If you look, you will live. If you believe, you will have eternal life. Look at verses 15 and 16. Whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Verse 16, whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. It's there twice for emphasis. If you look, you will live. If you believe, you will have eternal life. It's really, really simple. Whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Sometimes those outside of our theological camp raise this whosoever as an argument against our beliefs that the new birth must come from above, come from outside of us, and that God saves whomever He wills. And they say, whosoever. It says, whosoever believes. And I say, yes, amen. Whosoever believeth will not perish, but have everlasting life. We don't disagree with that. If you look, you will live. If you believe, you will have eternal life. Any Calvinist can preach that and should preach that. It is very simple. You don't need to believe the doctrine of election, the way the Reformed tradition has taught it. You don't need to believe the doctrine of regeneration, the way the Reformed tradition has taught it. You don't even need to know that there is a Reformed tradition. You don't even know, even know, need to know what regeneration is, or ever heard that word before, or election. You don't need to have a theological degree to be saved. You need to look to the Son of Man lifted up. You need to believe in Him. And in looking you will live, and in believing you will have eternal life. But here's how it works. In order to look to the Son of Man lifted up, you need to believe that you have poison running through your veins. Because as the serpent was lifted up, so the Son of Man is lifted up. And in order to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that you may be saved, you need to believe that you are presently perishing. And in order to believe that you might not be condemned, you need to accept, obviously, that at present, you are condemned. See, this is the flashlight, so to speak, that Christ shines into this world. He comes bringing illumination to these truths. That we are lost. That we are poisoned. That we are perishing. That we are condemned. His appearance into the world... Accentuated these truths taught not for the first time they're taught in the Old Testament they accentuated these truths 
that we, like sheep, had gone astray. That's in the epistle to the Romans, but first it's in Isaiah. And Jesus came operating within that paradigm. Claiming himself to be the shepherd who will bring the lost sheep home. We read also in Isaiah about the day of the Lord. The year of the Lord, pardon me. In Isaiah 61, which Jesus quotes from in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, the Old Testament taught us that we were poor that we were captive, that we were blind. Then it taught us of an anointed one who would come to remedy those conditions. See, these things have been taught before, but Jesus comes and says, it's all happening now. You're poisoned, look to the antidote. The Son of Man lifted up. You're perishing, look to the Son of God on the cross. You're condemned, believe in Him. This is the light that Jesus brought into the world in His incarnation. This flashlight that He shone upon us. But what do we read in John chapter 3? The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. If you look, you will live. If you believe, you will receive eternal life. It's as simple as that. But to look and to believe, you first have to acknowledge that you're poisoned, that you're perishing, that you're condemned. And in order to do that, we're back to the beginning of John chapter 3. You must be born again. You must be born again to acknowledge that you're poisoned, that you're perishing, that you're condemned. You must be born again to see that Jesus is like the serpent lifted up in the wilderness. That Jesus is the Son of God given that you might not perish. You must be born again to see that Jesus is the one in whom you must believe if you are not to be condemned. You must be born again to accept these things. So you don't need to believe that regeneration precedes faith. But regeneration does precede faith. And must precede faith. If you are ever to exercise your faith 
you must be born again. Unless you're born again, you can't even see that this is how the kingdom of God works. You can't even see that this is the redemptive program. You can't see that this is how it works. That the king doesn't come to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Unless you're born again. You can't accept a dying king over a killing king. Unless you're born again. You can't accept that the problem is not out there, but right in here. So you see that this is all one conversation. Jesus is simply developing on his theme of the kingdom of God and explaining to Nicodemus that the heart change must happen, Nicodemus, if you're ever going to see the nature of the kingdom of God and who those are who are received into the kingdom of God as citizens. If you're ever going to see that this is how it works. Apart from the new birth, we will all be like cockroaches. All of us who hate the light and love the darkness. All of us. I would be. You would be. Everyone out there would be and will be. Apart from the new birth. But in contrast to those people or all who come to the light and do what is true are those who have been born again. If you have come to the light or if you come to the light, if you do what is true as verse 21 talks about, it's because you have been born again. That's why those people's works are said and seen to have been carried out in God. That is by the new birth, which comes to us by the Spirit. And so John chapter 3 is not about the unjust and the extortioners and these whom the Pharisee is not like. In Luke 18. And then those who are not poisoned, perishing, and condemned. Those who of their own free will look to the Son of Man lifted up. Look to the Son of God. And then those fools who refuse. That's not what's going on in John chapter 3. What's going on in John chapter 3 is we are all fools. We are all cockroaches who hate the light and love the darkness. But God, by His Spirit, gives the new birth such that there are some who come to the light and do what is true. There are those whose works are carried out in God. There are those who have been born again and see and therefore enter the kingdom of God because They believe, they accept that they are poisoned, perishing, and condemned. 
It's God's doing. The difference is the new birth. The difference is God's grace. And so it's really simple. Look and live. Believe and receive eternal life. You don't have to understand all the theology behind it to receive that new life, to receive that antidote. Imagine Old Testament Israelites in their tent hearing a messenger running from tent to tent. Look on the bronze serpent and you will live. Well, how does that even work? How How is... The poison in my veins can be addressed by looking at the serpent. Well, how come that guy lives and how come I won't go? Why, why ask philosophical questions? Look and live. Believe and receive. It's as simple as that. And Jesus lays that out for us here in this section of John chapter 3. But it's all part of this broader narrative. Which is that unless you're born again, you're not going to look and live. Unless you're born again, you're not going to believe and receive. You're going to be like a cockroach that hates the light and prefers the darkness. But God, in giving you the new birth, will make you like a house plant on a windowsill that turns its petals and opens itself up toward the sun. God does that. So that when people see you come to the light and do the truth, it's seen that your works are carried out in God. As John chapter 3 and verse 21 says. That's how it all works. Jesus is teaching in this whole section about the kingdom of God. What it is how you enter it, what it looks like, how the king exercises his kingship. If you're to accept that, if you're to bring your life in line with that, you must be born again. Will you be, in hearing this this morning, like a cockroach or a houseplant? What will be your response To this. As I said, apart from God's gracious intervention, we'd all be cockroaches. Scurrying away from the light. As John 3 says, hating the light. Loving the darkness. Thanks be to God that He has already given the new birth to many of us. So many of us in this room. Thanks be to God that He's still in the business of doing that. For men and women, boys and girls around the world. If you're hearing this gospel message, and for the first time, you want the light. You want the antidote. You want the King, and you want His kingdom. It's evidence pointing in the direction that you've likely been born again too. 
as so many of the rest of us have been. And if so, thanks be to God for that. But don't get stuck at the stage of trying to figure out whether you've been born again or not. Believe in that Son of Man lifted up like the bronze serpent in the wilderness. Believe in the Son of God. And in doing so, believe the twice over promise repeated in verses 15 and 16 that you have come into the kingdom and have eternal life. Believe. Believe. Believe.